This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey there, folks. Just wanted to jump in before we start the episode proper and give a quick shout out to our sponsors on this episode. And it's from our friends again at Arrow Video doing, just like our other sponsor and friend, the Criterion Collection, doing very great, uh, exciting for cinephiles like us, Blu-ray restoration of a lot of great classic films, a lot of interesting older films. Uh, so a shout out for a couple uh, recent Blu-ray uh, releases from Arrow that I want to uh, put out there. They are available now and well worth looking out for. Robert Altman's Images, uh, one of his 70s films, Uh, Altman was such a legend. Not every movie uh, worked. They were hit or miss, but gosh, he was just a a really exciting voice at that time, and I cannot wait to watch this one. I've heard Images is one of his kind of sleeper, really special films. Uh, And then the other one is Season of the Witch, which is from George A. Romero, the director of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, A lot of his films are starting to be repurposed and uh, restored by Arrow, so that's very exciting. Again, I haven't seen this one, and I cannot wait to watch it. Uh, I believe it's a 70s film from Romero as well. So uh, look out for those titles, but there's plenty more every month from Arrow Video. So uh, we thank them for supporting uh, us on this episode, making it possible. And now on with the show. Welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, how are we doing today, man? Um, I'm I'm doing okay. Are we, are, are we doing okay? You must speak for both of us. We are a hive mind. No, I, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I mean, I... I how, do, how do I swing this? I get to see movies uh, where I live, up in Portland, often kind of for free. I'm, I'm in a very... Uh, uh, entitled lucky position up here where I, I'm kind of friends with people at theaters. Mm-hmm. I get access to press screenings and, and, and things like that. So I'm kind of in a lucky position and maybe I'm a bit oblivious. It, it can be expensive going to the movies and I need to remind myself of that, which is maybe why uh, we wanted to leap off here on this show with a, maybe a little chat about movie pass. Cause you in LA, you are not in the same privileged position and it must be, fucking expensive even to do something you love like go to the movies yeah like for you and for how it used to be for me back up in portland like you know like you you're a critic you can go to press screenings but also like you work for the northwest film center as well as cinema 21 so there's like reciprocity at local theaters and you can sign in most of the time so it's like it's a pretty charmed existence i remember living in terms of like going to the movies up there yeah and so down here, like I got used to paying like pretty quickly and like it's worth it just because like the repertory theaters down here are like pretty crazy or at least they have been until they all started getting shuttered. Um, and like, you know, I go to the to the to the movie theater pretty often. So I think it's like a it's a normal question for people to wonder if I've gotten into movie pass like I am have not. 
it seems scammy to me in like a way that I think we've, you know, maybe have discussed on mic, maybe not, but like, you know, just like you were mentioning how it's like the, the whole intention is to harvest people's like info and to get like data that's important to companies and stuff like that. Like that's sure. That's how like markets thrive nowadays. I understand that. But it also is lending to the sort of like devaluing of going to the movies. I know that people with movie pass take chances on movies and go to see stuff they never they wouldn't necessarily see, but it ends up becoming like a weird Costco effect of just like more and like not necessarily valuing the film like as much. And so like I went to go see um, a movie at a giant multiplex in Burbank. Uh, I went to go see Strangers, Pray at Night again terrible subtitle um <laughs> two weeks in a row it's come up <laughs> yeah um not the worst not good though um <laughs> but uh so my friends had movie pass we went and like this is a theater that you know has like i think like 18 screens and they run commercials before the trailers and the trailers themselves are like 20 minutes deep so like the movie doesn't ever start on time in air quotes it is that experience of people who are just sort of like going to see movies in bulk, not really giving a shit, being kind of like disengaged from the whole process. It just like, it just devalues, makes it less special. And like, you know, there's a, there's a theater that I go to that I've mentioned by name pretty regularly, the arc light it's walking distance from me. So I like going and like, there's, there's like a standard that they, they hold up to that it's like has to like sound and look at like perfect if it doesn't they give you your money back this theater is kind of expensive like it's like most people i'll tell them i'm going to see it at the arc line, like jesus that's that place is too expensive because it's like 17 plus dollars for a not a matinee so just a set movie you're paying 17 dollars. it's a lot of fucking money for something that you're just like I don't know about this one. So like yesterday I was going to see a, a double header of the movies we're discussing today mm-hmm. and um, I'm just going to pay for both. Don't have movie pass. Movie pass is not accepted at the arc light. And so I was just like, I'm paying $36 to see these two movies. It's more than 17. I'm not doing bad math. Um, <laughs> and so like, that's, that's a, that's a steep hill for movies and what like people are sort of, devouring them at at a certain pace and what they're used to in terms of like paying for like that just seems like a lot of money but in going like there is a certain reverence paid to the experience it's still like the arc light is still filled most of the time with people who appreciate the experience and in going like i was going to two movies the two movies we're discussing today are from legacy filmmakers one of which is like a legacy blockbuster filmmaker who has been, you know, he needs no introduction. Steven Spielberg, his new movie, Ready Player One. And then we have like an art house uh, legacy filmmaker, Wes Anderson. Like these two filmmakers have be, are like, they're the event directors. They're the ones that people are, will still sort of bounce around in conversation, even though the conversation seems to be kind of uh, just you know like it it feels like it's being jeopardized about the importance and significance of movies at least in terms of like where it used to be versus where it is now Mm -hmm. and so um you know like going there and like feeling like there is still a reverence for the experience 
and still like a, a sense of importance, you know, that like we've, we've elevated this art form for so long. We like, we belabor this point constantly about the devaluing of the experience about the, like the giant, you know, like just the, the homogenization of the, the sameness of big filmmaking and how like the, the levels of filmmaking are going away. And so, yeah, so I was there. I paid for it. I was glad I paid for it. God damn it. And, you know, <laughs> like sitting to see uh, the second I watched the Isle of Dogs and then Ready Player One. Ready Player One was shown in 70 millimeter and there was a trailer beforehand for the 50th anniversary of 2001. It was a 70 millimeter trailer for the film, which will be nice. shown in 70 millimeter. And it was just like, all right, this is like, you don't have to stay steeped in the past. There is no going back. There's no getting, you know, Pandora. Pandora doesn't go back in the box, as James Franco said in um, <laughs> Pineapple Express. <laughs> but, like, you know, there, there still is, like, pockets where it's still alive. And, like, movie pass doesn't necessarily signify the death of anything. But, like, you know, I don't know that, that my paranoia is off base, you know, in terms of, like, the, the sort of, like, discount bin uh, effect of of its like inception you know like so here we are we're uh two two movies that are built for going to the theater to see it and i saw them in the theater as did you so let's uh let's let's dive into it let's get into them man yeah because i think the movie pass conversation is not by any means done at this point. No, they're, they're gaining a lot of traction in the industry. They're making a lot of exhibition place, like uh, massive corporate chains like AMC are um, fighting against them in some ways. They're refusing that they'll ever go into business with them. But, and there was a recent deal where uh, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, he owns a chain of theaters called the landmark theaters. And there's like 50 of them around the city or I'm sorry, around the, the country. Like art house chain. Um, there's a couple in Minneapolis, actually, when I was living there uh, that I remember going to a lot. And he has struck a deal with MoviePass. So, I mean, the the wheels keep turning. Things are changing in that realm. But it is a very long... I mean, we could do an entire podcast on MoviePass, and maybe that'll come up someday. But um, I guess before we launch into the reviews, I would just say, Joe, like it might be worth it for you. Because you wouldn't, you know, I guess it's all about how the, the, the customer in this instance uses MoviePass because at my theater, which is an art house in Portland, Cinema 21, we are seeing yeah. more and more people just straight up saying, oh, I'm going to go see that Russian movie Loveless because I have MoviePass. Why not? And that movie was struggling. It pains me to say it struggled to stay in our theater for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a masterwork. It's probably going to be in my top 10 by the end of the year. And um, I just wanted people to see the movie. And some people did because of something like Movie Pass. But I think your concern of the data hoarding is really gross. But I guess we understand it at this point. It's just part of life, unfortunately. Uh, but also the, the devaluing of the cinematic experience, that's very troublesome to me. Because suddenly it all seems like you're just paying what you pay for Netflix to go to the theater. And that's not sustainable. Nor is it really appropriate when you get the big experience of the big screen, the big sound. Well, and there's no incentive for the theaters to therefore make it like a, a a sort of like plush, not plush, but like, uh, or special plush. (laughs) Those are your options. But like, you know, just to, to make it 
an experience worthy worthy of reverence. You know what I mean? Like if it's being devalued, if it's like, oh, these assholes are paying nine ninety nine to see however much they <laughs> how much they can stuff into their face, like then like we we don't really need to pull out all the stops. Like we could just you know it'll be like a giant mall that like everybody sort of staggers through bleary eyed like not sure of like what all they've watched after they've watched too many movies. And granted this isn't everybody because like, I know film fanatics who like film matters to like significantly who are, are using movie pass, you know, the friends that I went to see strangers pray at night uh, with like they <laughs> they love film. They work on film. They, they, it's like, it matters to them. We had like a, a very like heated, passionate discussion about that movie afterwards. So it's nice. just, not everybody it's not everybody devaluing the experience by like shoving as much as they can into their face but you know that is happening and it's going to continue to happen and like if you have the netflix experience in going to the movies like i'll straight up just give up on stuff on netflix and because it's there i can figure like i'll pick it up again later doesn't matter and then i won't you know just because like no consequence there's just no sense of like investment in like the actual experience it's like you're disengaged that much and like maybe that's just uh where we're at we're disengaged i could it's i think so i i think movie pass could be the sort of thing that actually ends a, some big multiplex chains if they really go in because it's yeah. just not a sustainable model as it is right now it's a ridiculously unsustainable model right now because just think of renting a brick and mortar giant multiplex that costs a lot of money. So there, there's so much to get into. And I just, even this 15 minutes here, it just made me want, maybe we need to dive into it soon and see like all the angles that we know and, and get into it. Cause I think there's a lot to discuss because in, in my mind, there's just a real almost, it's not even that much of a leap for me. There's like a real through line to movie pass to the Wally future existence where we're all just on pods that float us around and the screen is right in front of our fucking face. And we, yeah. we just get fat and stare at screen. You know, it's not the same thing, but I don't feel like there's a big leap there. And um, the sort of Costco effect you, you very appropriately describe it as also just makes me feel like uh, you remember the Chappelle show. There was a sketch where like he envisioned uh, the internet as like a mall that you could. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I, you just walk into like, Oh, there's goat sex in this movie. All right. Like you'll just randomly go in because fuck it. Why not? It's, it's, it's free essentially, you know? And, and it's not like necessarily what that sketch was about in terms of the movie culture, but it kind of uh, it's appropriate to this discussion. I feel like as well. So um, yeah, you know, I think you and me are more troubled than most people, but most people just seem to be like, great deal. That's all I care about. Take all my data. I want to go see movies cheaper and cheaper. Right. And so be it. There's a positive to theaters getting, getting because of movie pass theaters are making more money arguably right now. Um, but yeah, the, the shoe's going to drop on that eventually, but, uh, we'll be here to talk about it when that happens, I suppose. But in the meantime, you know, we have uh, two bigger movies on different scales to talk about this week. Uh, yeah, what do you want to start with, man? Uh, maybe Isle of Dogs. Sure. So it's, uh, it's Wes Anderson's new film that he co-wrote with a um, just a, a cornucopia of white men. Um, <laughs> well, there's one Japanese writer, but not that that well, excuses anything. But 
I didn't say I didn't see his name, but uh, there's a story credit. But again, yeah. that's that's almost sounds like I'm defending something. I don't mean to sound that way. <laughs> um, but it's it's another one of his uh, animated efforts, which as he gets more and more sort of meticulous and fetishistic in his set design with his live action stuff, it seems to be that like animation kind of is the logical next step. So his first animated feature of Fantastic Mr. Fox is now followed up with his second Isle of Dogs, where, um, you know, both movies we're going to discuss today uh, take place in kind of trashed landscapes. Um, this one where a, you know, all dogs are banished to a trash island where um, they, they, they band together and eventually make their way back to the mainland. And um, they're all voiced by great, great voice actors. Some you'll recognize, some you'll str- struggle to place throughout the movie. Do you, do you mean in the context of a Wes Anderson movie or just in general? Uh, what do you mean? Oh, I'm sorry. Like, you know, you've got the normal, like heavy, the normal Wes Anderson players are in this movie, but then there's some new people like Brian Cranston and Scarlett yeah. Johansson. Do you just mean in general, you'll be like, Oh, who is that? Like stop talking. That's exactly what I meant. Okay. Sorry. Now that I clarified that we can go on. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Wes Anderson is somebody that we've you know discussed uh, a handful of times as his new movies have rolled out since we've been doing the podcast. I think our first discussion was of Moonrise Kingdom, yeah, um, which neither one of us were thrilled about. I think you yeah. were a little more lenient and generous towards it than I was because I really dislike the experience even saw it a second time to be sure and I was sure um, me, me too man I had a second viewing like a year later or something and I, I'm with you I'm, I, I don't dislike any Wes Anderson movie but that one v- gets close <laughs> yeah because it just it seems like he it's all just his like fetishistic ticks and rhythms like devoid of any true charms so it seems like a bad parody of him like it does yeah it's like the 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 visual the visuals are supposed to be the joke and it's just like, well, where's like, like he's a good, he's a great writer and he like is a, you know, a very kind of, he, he finds the energy in a seemingly still and deadpan moment. And so it's just like this movie felt devoid of the charm and the sort of energy beneath the deadpan. It just felt dead. And, um, and then after that, uh, he accessed that sort of energy that was missing in Grand Budapest Hotel, and um, so now we're we're here in 2018 with his new film. And um, Eric, I feel like you like this movie, right? I'm a big fan of this movie. Um, I think there's a lot to discuss even beyond whether what and what we did not like about this movie. I mean, I, I'm sure you know where I'm going already with this. There's there's some controversy already brewing around this movie. Um, about appropriation of other cultures. And uh, I think it's we, it, we have to discuss that in some ways. Um, I don't know how much insight me and Joe can give as two white men, but we'll, we'll, I want to speak to this idea because it's, it's an, it sort of is counter to what our concern is at the top of this show and uh, that we've been talking about a lot on the podcast of like, is the discussion around, you know, our is the culture caring less and less overall about movies enough to even just dive in and discuss them beyond just good or bad. Right. And so part of that's exciting to me. We have people and groups that are getting larger and larger um, 
and and more more and more people are paying attention to this as the movie's rolling out Isle of Dogs of like hey man this movie is charming as fucking hell it is adorable in my mind without being cloying and the worst Wes Anderson movies can be cloying Moonrise mm-hmm. King Moonrise Kingdom being an example so I was very much just swept up in Isle of Dogs I mean the first minute or two me and my girlfriend were watching it. We leaned into each other and I just was like, I love this movie already. Like there are moments when a movie opens so strongly or whatever it's doing to sort of get you into the story. Like I'll just be like, I love this movie already and it's going to have to work pretty hard to fuck this up. Mm -hmm. So in broad strokes, I really, really am a big fan of Isle of Dogs. I think it's, it's gorgeous. I think it's got a sweet heart to it. And I think it actually has ideas and themes working that are um, layering on top of each other, much like Grand Budapest. And um, I want to know how you feel about it. But the last thing I'm going to say that most impresses me about new Wes Anderson right now, specifically Grand Budapest and this one, his pacing, his pacing is just out of control. Like he packs a lot, not just into the frame visually, but he just, these movies are very dense and yet, it's like an hour and 35 minutes long and it feels epic in a good way. I didn't feel like the movie was too long. I just wanted it to keep going, um, but it's a full meal. Uh, so uh, I'm very impressed by what feels like a somewhat new stage in Wes Anderson's career, but essentially he's still doing Wes Anderson stuff in this movie. And um, in this case, it, it still, it still really, really worked for me. Yeah. He, there, there's like, it seems like he's, there's, there's a lot more focus on kind of, traditional story beats like big moments he's able to hit more and maybe it's like in the abstraction of working in animation that he's able to get there there's just like these crescendos that like his movies you know like would seem too muted and too subdued in like the early work to be able to hit these sort of bigger moments and there's something ridiculous about like you know watching a movie primarily about dogs like hitting these like big cinematic crescendos but it's like it's also kind of beautiful in the same way um i i don't like we mentioned the appropriation conversation uh initially uh you didn't really remark on it in in terms of like your feelings about the movie but it's mm-hmm. like it seems like we're at a place culturally where it's crucial that those those things need to be assessed because we're in such dangerous terrain in terms of like regression that it's like everything can no longer go unchecked basically. Exactly. So you have a a movie primarily written by white men um, focused on Japanese culture. And it's just like, it's one thing if it's a live action movie and you're hiring primarily Japanese people to portray, you know, Japanese characters and there is some sense of agency in their performance, if it's entirely animated, then you are creating the effect of what a Japanese person looks like. And so, like, in that, you get into some potentially squirmy territory. Disney is certainly guilty of this in terms of their racial caricatures throughout decades up until this point. I don't know how responsible they're being now. They probably just, you know, need to make everybody an animal. So like, they're not necessarily, you know, like, Oh, they don't have a racial makeup or background. So uh, let's, not, let's not worry about it. Thanks so much. Why does he have like, a Middle Eastern accent then? Oh God, we can't do anything right. You can't. That's right. Um, but, uh, 
yeah. So like, it, you know, going in, having heard like there's a pitchfork headline that uh, a singer of an indie group called yeah. uh, Isle of Dogs, like racist bullshit. And I was like, great. Like, what isn't racist bullshit nowadays? Yeah. And not that it like all of these things need to be investigated because we can no longer leave these things unchecked. We are in a frightening period and these things need to be thoroughly examined. So it was just like watching it, watching the opening with these like Japanese boys pounding on drums as the initial part of the score, the score that like becomes like this propulsive element to hit those like amazing story points throughout the film. Like I was like, well, this is amazing. Thinking about it in terms of like cultural appropriation, I was like, well, Quentin Tarantino is certainly guilty of yeah. all of that. And it was just like, and then we get into the territory. It was like, well, is everybody getting called out? Are all past like transgressions going to be picked apart? And it was just like, can anything be enjoyed on its own merits? And it was just like, I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, I don't. I don't like. Ultimately, again, like you're right that you and I aren't necessarily the the mouthpieces for this concern. We can like take them into consideration, but like. I'm not the person to speak on the grievances of these transgressions, you know, like I'm not the appropriate person. Like no, no one necessarily needs my hot take on it. Like I don't feel like the movie is ultimately burdened to a fault by what could be seen as racial appropriation, but it does, it is kind of a squirmy territory and it's like the least potentially offensive when it's just focused on the dogs. Right. Right. Which, you know, the movie that's the lead characters, right. And it brings up, another potentially squirmy aspect of the movie that I will admit when I watched the movie didn't bother me, but reading critics who have taken it upon themselves to uh, maybe enlighten you and I, or, or just, just let people know like, Hey, I had a problem for this and it's legit. And um, there's a few, I just want to shout out um, Jen Yamato. She writes for the LA times has done a really great job of pointing this out. Uh, yeah. You know, you know her work. She is great. And Justin Chang, his review at the LA times, uh, very good. They did a video thing together about it. It's about 15 minutes long on LA times. It's, it's really balanced and even handed and they both like the movie a lot, but they have issues with it. And I, I think that feels like an evolution of film discourse, at least online film criticism discourse. You know, commenters, they're going to just do what they do, and that can be demoralizing. But it starts at the top with critics like this, the critics at the major media outlets like the LA Times. And it's very even-handed. And I love that they... Because it's so easy, especially on the internet. I'm sure you've had moments like this. It happens to me where someone posts something that seems like a hot take or it is a hot take and they just shit on something that you really like, a movie, let's say. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time, I think guys like you and me or just, just anybody that loves a movie want to defend it and be like, whoa, 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 you're wrong, I think, because of this. Mm-hmm. But what's been refreshing to me to read more about this aspect of Isle of Dogs is most people really like this movie. It's kind of hard to find people who think it's terrible. Uh, the front man for that indie band probably disagrees, but seasoned professional critics, even with grievances on this film tend to like, I, I just, I appreciate the separation. I'm pointing out things I have issues with in this film. It could have been done better in this way, but I still think this movie's good. It's not a good or bad binary thing. We're getting into the complexity of film discourse for 
what will be and already is a big fucking hit movie. Like Isle of Dogs is going to be probably as popular as Grand Budapest Hotel is my guess. Um, It just seems like ready to be like a sort of oddball in the mainstream kind of hit, you know, like mainstream parents might actually bring their kids to this movie. And that's it could be a big hit in that way. Hopefully they're paying attention to this stuff. I doubt it. It's probably more for you and me and, and the critics of the world and other cinephiles. But it is a valuable discussion, and I've really appreciated that kind of the discourse. Um, and I guess personally, where I came from it in terms of like watching Isle of Dogs, I really, I already said I liked it, but I, I look at it this way: you, you said it. You and I are not the people necessarily to speak directly to this thing, but I've been enjoying listening and learning from it. Um, I will say that anybody that does have an issue with Isle of Dogs, the level of appropriation, if they think it's racist, I might. Say like, okay, I don't know if I see that, but if you if you see issues in this movie, you're not wrong, right? That's that's like an obvious thing, but you gotta acknowledge it. Like they are not wrong. They have a very good point to make. I will say personally, the movie doesn't offend me, although there are things where I'm like, ooh, that, did you need to have the one white English speaking girl be the hero at the end of this movie? Like there's things that occurred to me as being like, oh, that's absolutely potentially troubling in terms of a lot of cliches, white savior stuff, uh, appropriation of other cultures, animating these people. And then you're sort of playing up stereotypes, potentially even unwittingly. Um, but I found this movie so loving, like so lovingly, uh, affectionate to this culture and more specifically Japanese art and Japanese cinema that it's that Wes Anderson thing. It's like Darjeeling limited. He's trying to He's trying to take the stuff from a culture of cinema that he grew up loving and has loved and adored and wants to make his version of it. Is it potentially troubling? Yes. Is it maybe short-sighted? I think probably, but this is such an affectionate movie that it it wins me over. But again, anybody that has a problem, you probably have a very good point to make, I think. Yeah, I think that like the the danger is that like discourse is getting so like the, the extremes of people's perspectives cancel out any potential nuance. So it's just like you, like having the two critics you mentioned have a thoughtful discussion about the craft that clearly goes into place for a movie like this. Like you feel the love in terms of the attention to detail to like how it looks like it's beautifully realized and so it's just like you can acknowledge that and also acknowledge troubling aspects of the movie, things yes. that like are squirmy and tough to deal with. But like if you just like blurt out, you know, the way car seat headrest sink fr- front person, did, <laughs> which I was convinced that was like a, somebody brought that band up recently. I was like, is that fake? Like, is that a real fucking name of a band car seat headrest? Like, is this where cup holder? the band (laughs) like i don't know i mean titles are just hard to come by nowadays i thought you made it up for a second i forgot the name of the band (laughs) no that's that's the real name and i was like fuck my coworker brought them up and i was like for real that's the name of the band and like it was like the oldest moment i've experienced recently so i feel like i'm pretty you know i'm pretty informed about what's out there but i was like car seat headrest like manila envelope the movie like what the (laughs) happening coupon the movie so just like yeah coupon the movie um but like having having a nuanced discussion just feels like 
it's that's what's missing. So if you if you if you're just entirely dismissive of like genuinely troubling aspects of a film or a TV show or any work of art and then like but you're dismissing other parts like there just feels like a picture that's like missing and maybe it's because we are living in truly frightening times and we can't afford to continue to support certain things that do are loose with like things that are like you know basically just cancerous to our our well-being as decent thoughtful people you know like mm-hmm. and so they they're just like i can't afford to take any of this bullshit in anymore anything that's misogynistic i can't take it in i can't like give a pass to this shit anymore like even if it's like like artistically sound and it's beautifully realized like fuck this shit i can't tolerate it anymore because we're at such a frightening threshold culturally like like, humanistically and so like but it does feel like you are drowning something out and like the extremes end up feeling like you like can't have a nuanced discussion and like the loss of nuance is something that like you and i have been you know considering the casualty of for like a long time like we the the loss of nuance in filmmaking itself and so for a movie that like i liked i did like this movie i did not love it the way you did but okay, it, like, okay. to to acknowledge that you know like the care that went into it and like the how beautifully it's realized like to me, he he gets a little too he still is a little too cutesy, and that's like suffocating to me. <laughs> um, but I do appreciate that he's hitting these big story points, and like he he there are these like giant moments in this movie that like you know are beautifully realized. I don't like how he characterizes cats. Um, don't care. Oh, yeah. They're like you. You said it was anti-cat. It's just like slight about cats. They're just so, they're so <laughs> marginalized, and maybe like it, it deserves its own follow-up with a racially insensitive uh, caricature to go along with it. Who knows? Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see in the future. Wes Anderson. The the racially insensitive cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> the RICU inappropriately uh, created. um yeah i'm glad to hear your thoughts on the cat angle because wes anderson has not been kind to cats in his recent movies i mean jeff goldblum's cat got murdered brutally in grand budapest hotel so yeah and you know dogs have been beaten silly in previous movies like life aquatic and stuff he's it, it it he's never been afraid to like have these sort of like whoa dude like these intense moments that you're like whoa man directly to like animals innocent like pets and then uh yeah this kind of on the spectrum in that sense like he was just like wait what what are you doing like why why did you run over the goddamn dog and the royal tenenbaums right he just he seems like he's not aware of the brutality that or maybe he is and he just doesn't care but like my personal sensitivity to it he seems oblivious to and i don't appreciate it it can come off that way. I think Royal Tenenbaums might be the best example because that's just such a bizarre like culmination and climax in that film. Yeah. As soon as you see, you cut to Owen Wilson with paint on his face, you're like, where has he been? <laughs> and then mm-hmm. it's like that cartoon edit where like the cars crash and the dog leash is there, but he's dead, you know? And it's like, damn, that almost feels oblivious or uh, almost like unfeeling, like not caring yeah. in a cold way. 
But, you know, other examples like Life Aquatic is, I feel like the Jeff Goldblum character like beats the three-legged dog in that movie. And it's, uh, to me, it's like to make you real, it's like he's the villain of the movie. We want you to see why he's the villain. He hits a dog, I guess, you know, and sure, is that worth seeing that idea? I, I don't know. It's, it's it, in a way, it might be another version of maybe not appropriation. It's like exploitation of even your animal actors or characters. This is the kind of places in the film discourse we might be heading towards. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily of like, Hey man, like we should look at all the the elements of a movie and are they being treated fairly? And a movie can still be very good, even if they're not being treated fairly or disrespectful or, or whatever. But, um, it's a very interesting time. And, uh, I, I'm glad to hear you liked Isle of Dogs. Um, I guess what I want to ask you about that is, is it still, I feel like the through line of our recent Wes Anderson chats on this podcast through the years is that you, uh, you and me always talked about the first one that we saw that means the most to us with a director like that. And for me, it was Rushmore still my favorite, but I've loved other subsequent movies like grand Budapest. I just, adore. I think that's one of his best films. Um, but for you, it's bottle rocket. If I remember correctly. And is, is this still that thing where like you, you just haven't had that same feeling as you did when you saw bottle rocket? with, with other Wes Anderson. Yeah. And I think that we like identified in discussing him before that, like he, he didn't have the resources to get as like uh thorough visually to get as like fetishistic, as I said, you know, like in terms of the design and look of it and as obsessive as he's become. Um, so it was just like the, the beats and the rhythms in the movie had to be captured differently through the performance, through the editing. And I think that there's, there's something that's a little more kinetic in that because it becomes like museum, like, uh, otherwise it's like in his later work and it becomes too like still and statuesque and too like, I don't know, like fussed over. Yeah. Yeah. Fussy. Exactly. Um, it's a very white word, fussy, um, (laughs) So feeling the the sort of kineticism at work in Bottle Rocket, like I like I love that movie when I saw it. I saw it in a theater with one other person at the time, and so like by the time Rushmore came out, I was like, yeah, this is the Bottle Rocket guy, and they're like, huh? I don't. Who cares? Anyway, Rushmore's crazy. I'm like, oh, well, oh, another movie. That's good. But like, <laughs> he's somebody that I don't know. He's at his best, I think is able to find the energy in the deadpan and the sadness in the sort of darkly comic. And, you know, like that he achieves that in this movie pretty effectively. Um, I don't know like what, I'm not sure what my slight hesitancy is in this movie necessarily. Just that like, as big as the moments were, there was still like a sort of precious distance felt from the experience. And, um, I wasn't as like immersed as I maybe wanted to be. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm not sure what the, maybe I'm just like, I'm, it's hard for me to let things in. right now. <laughs> <laughs> your, your cold, dark heart is hard to reach Joe. Uh, no, man, I, I get it because as, as warm as this movie can be, Isle of Dogs. Um, you kind of need to dig through a lot of ice to get to it to, for trying to belabor a metaphor here. Like, uh, it, he's a cold, distant filmmaker, almost in like just through the nature of his fussy filmmaking. 
you're, right. you're, you're encapsulated in this diorama like world and part side note. That's why I love that he's doing stop motion again, like fantastic Mr. Fox, because almost all his movies are stop motion in their fussiness and the, 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 uh, the, um, the assembling of the frame and the, uh, uh, the mise-en-scene to use a fancy word. Like I know what I'm talking about. It's not like surface level over the top sentimental, like director Steven Spielberg's work can be. And, and, maybe some things we could get to when we talk about ready player one that's a difference of like it's just on the surface there easily gleaned for the audience and Mm -hmm. um isle of dogs is a crowd pleaser and and if you're into the movie it's it's probably going to work for you in that way and it it's got like a warm sweetness to it but it's like He's, he just has this ability setting it in like a dystopic future fake fantasy version of Japan adds to this of like, it's a cruel, more cruel world here now. And it's, it's cold and brutal and the people in charge are fucked and they're, they're punishing dogs undeservedly. It's, it's, it's unfair. But like, if you, when you, as the movie takes you along, it, it can, it can work in that way. But like, you really do have to dig a little dip a bit for that warmth. But, um, I do think it's there, but also it's like a, maybe that is harder. I don't know. I don't need to figure out why you, the movie just sort of worked for you. It's like, I, but there is a difference there from bottle rocket, which, which bottle rocket is a very inviting, just sort of almost it's about as straightforward a movie as he's made yet. It still has all that Wes Anderson stuff right there from the beginning. Um, but his resources were smaller, as you mentioned, and, uh, he was a different filmmaker still at that time. So, um, it's an interesting case with him, man. I still Rushmore is still my favorite. Maybe that'll never get topped. Maybe it doesn't matter, but um uh I look forward to seeing Isle of Dogs again. I'm really curious how it's going to play on a second watch because I do feel like in this new stage of his career where he's got more budgetary resources and can kind of do what he wants, like his movies are so densely packed as I mentioned that like I want to go back and see what I missed this time essentially and um it is a gorgeous movie. I want to see it again on that big screen. But um, I guess I, I, I'm really appreciating the multi-layered conversation that we are having and that some critics are trying to encourage other folks to to have about this film as well. And I, I, I hope it continues. I hope it takes because I don't think this movie is going away anytime soon. Um, I don't know what you think, but doesn't this one feel like it's going to be a big, big fucking hit? I'm not sure, uh, honestly. Okay. Like I... I you know, like I hope for the sake of like Wes Anderson continuing to work, it is like, I think it'll be fine. Um, it all, it, it, it's weird that like, we're only a few years away from grand Budapest hotel, but it, it feels like the, the seismic shifts in terms of like what could be genuine hits are like, they've changed so much, you know, and like what will continue to be foregone conclusions in terms of like, what goes where. Um, so it's just like, I went to go see it a week after it had already been playing in uh, LA and the crowd was like, yeah, it was decent. It wasn't like big on for a weekend. And so it's, it's hard to say like, you know, in terms of like the, the sense of like importance for a movie, like I don't really hear like a lot of impassioned discussion about the film itself. Like a few out, like outlier people will be like, would you see Isle of dogs yet? But like, I don't know. I I can't really tell. Like I I get sort of uh, an uncertain vibe from its its potential because like the movies that hit hit on such a titanic level that like you know a movie like Black Panther is like you cannot 
argue the impact it's had you know it's, like it's outgross titanic domestically that movie is huge man yeah sorry it's a big deal huh black panther is gonna pass titanic in domestic box office like this week sometime that's amazing Good. man yeah fucking right yeah. <laughs> and you didn't even like black panther that much <laughs> yeah like it's uh i i i'm grateful for what it signifies um yep do not love comic book movies and it's no like it's it's a comic book movie so that's that's my issue with it but like yeah yeah i i i don't i don't i can't tell what's gonna stick nowadays in terms of like you know so like saying absolutely like this movie's gonna be a hit and it's not going away like i don't know that that's true <laughs> so like i don't know how compelling my fucking ambivalence is towards this like you know what i mean <laughs> i liked it i didn't love it oh fascinating anyway moving on to our next topic yeah and maybe maybe we should because i was gonna say like wes anderson i think is at a stage in his career where it's not a guarantee director names do not sell movies but not not typically but i think he's become enough of a box office household name where like christopher nolan does this too on a larger scale but their names mean something and carry weight, much like the director of Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg. I know that we've talked about this before in terms of like event directors, like the directors that still like Quentin Tarantino, you know, has been in the past that still one of those names. David mm-hmm. Fincher still feels like one of those names, or at least when Gone Girl came out, there was like a, a sense of momentum around the film itself that it was like his new work. And so like, there are those personalities still. Christopher Nolan is one of them. And Steven Spielberg, it just feels like he will always, always be in the discussion considering his imprint on like movies at the point that he, he came in. Like he changed everything in the seventies in terms of like what big films could be. Like he was instrumental in like changing the course of things with Jaws, like his involvement with like, you know, he, didn't have anything to do with star Wars, but like just that camp of people that came up with like the new formula of what were going to be big entertainment. What like he was instrumental in all of it in the early eighties with like ET and uh, Raiders of the lost Ark. And so it's just like, he, he, he like set the tone for what would be, you know, kind of like coveted and um, his, new movie based on the novel ready player one by Ernest Klein um, is, is kind of like it. I think the argument against <clears throat> big films and blockbuster movies from the late seventies through the eighties was that it was all peak. Mm. And then it was all like, there was that it, it they discussed that in the documentary about 70s cinema, a decade under the influence that it was like, there was no valleys in between the way you and I talk about no nuance, nuance being squeezed out of movies nowadays. And so like those movies were all just like crescendo and nothing else. And you watch those movies now and you're like, no, there's plenty of fucking like ebbs and flows and valleys (laughs) between the peaks. And like, and so it's interesting to see now what maximalized uh, big spectacle entertainment is like, the peaks of the peaks, the highlight reels of the peaks where there is no build. It's just straight crescendo the entire time and how numbing and overwhelming and how kind of like empty it makes you feel. 
And so with this movie, you have a movie about uh, a dystopian future where everybody still listens to music from the 80s somehow, whereas <laughs> nowadays could give a fuck about music from the 80s. Like, sure, it's still there, and their parents like it, but it was just like, no, no, they're not, sh- they don't know these groups by name necessarily. Anyway, so they're living in an overpopulated dystopian future where the only respite is in virtual reality in a world called the Oasis, which is crammed with references from pop culture from the 80s through the 90s um but primarily the 80s and so i think at its strongest this movie is able to access the classic storytelling that steven spielberg kind of like perfected in his best movies through what modern movies have become, which is a maximalist overload. And so like in the Oasis, in the virtual reality realm that the main characters are in, where they are these avatars that look like they're from Final Fantasy hmm. and they're they're navigating this like hyperkinetic, hectic, overwhelming kind of scenery, they're it's overstuffed and maximalized. And so finding the the sort of through line through what movies have essentially become is like where I thought this movie could really take off and like be, be compelling in its own way and finding like a new relevance for Steven Spielberg, Spielberg to access what he's classically good at in what has kind of detrimentally become of uh, spectacle cinema. And um, I think in the first like half, like I was like, I'm with it. I'm like this, like this, uh, this is actually visually interesting. Like even in like the car chases that like are too much, like it was like, there's a visual coherence that I was able to follow. And like, I don't like the, I don't like the look of virtual reality, essentially the uncanny Valley thing, but I was like, I'll, I'll go with it. It's fine. Um, you know, they look like avatar meets final fantasy and, a little bit of a lawnmower man throwed it thrown in for good measure. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think as it needs to actually um, conclude itself, as it needs to become like a little more emotionally engaged, it, I think the film can't have it both ways uh, that like it, it ultimately can't pull off navigating through a maximalist world without just like succumbing to what's ultimately weak about that, that it's too overloading that you can't have it all. Like you need to focus, you need to focus the action, the drama, the dramatic tension, like it all needs to be coherent in order for any payoff to happen. Because if it is all payoff, then it is meaningless, numbing and ultimately boring. I think this movie still has a strength in struggling between the two, but ultimately like it, it just becomes part of the problem in it's kind of like concluding section. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm so stuck on your Mad Max Fury Road review when we talked about it years ago. Yeah. And here you are saying maximalist. And I just wanted to pun out and say Mad, Mad Maximal, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you followed me a hundred percent there. Yeah. It, this movie is a mixed bag for me. Uh, it's it, maybe we'll get to. It sounds like you might have even in, 
enjoyed it more than me, but maybe that doesn't matter exactly. But I found myself getting into this movie at times and then almost jarringly taken out. Um, the car chase sequence you're referring to is very busy in that modern sense. It's basically an entirely animated movie at that point. But given the concept of of the story taking place in the Oasis, which is a giant video game, it does kind of work. I would say similar to like how the Matrix became, they almost, not almost, they went like in the sequels in the Matrix, they really pushed like digital fighting, digital characters doing stuff where you could tell these were computer animated Keanu Reeves and uh, Hugo Weaving. Mm-hmm. But it almost works a little bit better. I think better in ready player one, because it actually is a virtual reality thing. It's like, you can kind of go with the fact that it's like impressive CGI made to look kind of real, but it doesn't because it's just that oval. It's just that maximalist CGI. Ah, it's just everywhere. Right. Right. Um, so that mostly works. I do think Spielberg still has it as an action filmmaker. Um, because I do think there's a clarity and a geographical like logic to that car chase, which is very busy, but I completely could follow it. Yeah, and, there's a um, to it where you're just like yes. you're. There's a th- visual through line where you're not. It's not just like there's a joke made in the movie about the amount of ads that can open up like in front of like someone's field of vision before they actually like when they're on the cusp of having a seizure from too many of them. <laughs> like, this movie does that. Like it, it's sort of like escalates things and piles images together to bring you to like near seizure levels of overwhelming, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it embraces that. And it's, it's not as impressive of um, a sort of old man filmmaker accomplishment as something like Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street, which I don't think is a perfect movie by any means, but both that and ready player one do feel like these just legendary veteran filmmakers from a bygone wonderful era of cinema still got it. They can still like compete with the young guys and actually give it something. They're not just, at least in this case, Spielberg's not just trying to like play like the younger guys and Scorsese as well. They still made it their way. And um, since they are essentially influential to almost all forms of modern day cinema at this point, Steph, especially Spielberg in this realm, like that's really cool. But, um, in terms of like a film all the way through the arc of the story and the characters and everything, I, I actually enjoyed the post better or bridge of spies more. So maybe I appreciate the more low key uh, adult Spielberg in his later age, mm-hmm. but um, that car chase is impressive in ready player one, but man, that there's a middle sequence in this movie. That is something I didn't know I needed but I'm so glad it's there. I would have raised my eyebrow if I knew about this before, but I loved it. And it's the, the shining sequence though. Like it's like shining fan fiction. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to know how you feel about that. Cause that sequence is the one point in the movie where I, I woke the fuck up. I was laughing through like the 10 or 15 minutes of the sequence. Mm-hmm. And it's genuinely fun what it does paying such reverence to one of my all-time favorite movies and my favorite filmmaker also steven spielberg was very good friends with stanley kubrick and admired the hell out of him so i feel like there's a real like generous um uh, there's more it's it's another very loving affectionate thing in this movie that uh i really appreciated and that's the sequence that i almost would say is worth 
going to the theater, that alone, I think, is worth going to the theater for. Yeah, I think that, like, there, there's, like, I think it's an incredible sequence. Like, I think it's got an enthusiasm and an energy and just, like, I wonder what it would be like to um, to someone who's never seen The Shining because yeah. I'm, I'm often taking, you know, people who are, like, not informed into consideration. Um, it's really <laughs> generous of me. But, um, yes. <laughs> you know, like... They they actually almost address that in the one of the characters, uh, yes. H, uh, who like is a sort of like Vin Diesel type like ogre in the the Oasis, and he has never seen the movie, and so he's like, "Have you? I, I'm never, is this movie scary?" And like, <laughs> so like, that's he's a good like, impression. <laughs> thank you. He's almost the through line to somebody who hasn't seen it. And so he's an emotional access point, you know, and so like it sort of makes that that sequence, which is beautifully realized. Like it's so like so well done. But then he makes it like sing all the more, you know, like and it just really comes to life. And I think like that's there are sustained sections in this in in Ready Player One that are able to access like the kind of classic wonderment of early Steven Spielberg approaching like a sort of new, new vernacular for like modern spectacle movies. And like, you know, like it, it, it doesn't land necessarily in a satisfying conclusive place. Like I didn't walk out exhausted or aggravated. Like I was like, okay, that was, that was fine by the end. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. but like in its struggle to have it both ways, like I, I think it, it does have enough charm to make it worth going to the movies to like, see it. Like, like you said, even for no other reason than for the shining sequence and for sequences that sort of like pay off in that way. And like, he's somebody I remember you mentioned Mad Max and definitely George Miller is one of these aging directors that's able to like, maximalize you know in a way that's like super impressive mm. um but like owen gleiberman was interviewed about like what he kind of saw as like the the downturn in um in movies was like raiders of the lost ark he was right. like this was a bad mile marker because it was just like there was no there was no build-up it was all like basically everything that we said um from the criticism made in a decade under the influence. And it was like, now he champions a movie. Like he was like, he loves Fury road. I'm like, that right. is the distillation of your criticism. Like <laughs> it's all peak. There is no character, no nuance, no build. It's just all on high screaming in your fucking face until it stops. And it's just like, uh, okay, well, you know, you take the good, you take the bad. <laughs> and that that's a really great interview, we should say. I mean, Brett Easton Ellis's podcast hasn't really done anything new in a while. We're kind of hoping he comes back because he's a voice that we actually like to listen to, mm-hmm. especially his film criticism stuff. You know, say what you will about the man's politics or whatever, but he's a really uh, erudite, smart film voice. And yep. uh, you can find it on his podcast feed. That 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 interview with Owen Glaberman is is great. I mean, former Entertainment Weekly critic. He's been doing this forever. Really smart guy. But you're right, man. He completely. It's not even a contradiction. I think he understands probably what you're pointing out. But it's just like that threshold. Like he accepts that, but didn't like that in the '80s. And it's so quaint now. Like Raiders of the Lost Ark is like a perfect action movie, you know. But he doesn't see it that way. And yeah, um, 
the coherence of like yes like let's say this the boulder scene great the scene where he's fighting the giant bald nazi and the 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 propeller of the plane is circling around like you understand every part of what's going on as the gasoline's leaking like it's built and he gives you like all of the the things you need to understand to establish suspense which like seems to be jettisoned in movies nowadays where you're just like, I don't know what's going on and I just want it to stop. <laughs> so like, <laughs> you know, like maximalist cinema is just like how much further, how much more hectic can it get in order to sustain audiences who like need it to be this loud and this fast in order to like energize any sense that something's happening, you know? And so like, I enjoyed watching that struggle take place. And I think that like enough of the movies still works, but like, I don't know, like there's, there's also just like the movie is so insistent in terms of its energy, in terms of its like visual language that by the end, like I walked out and I was like, but wait a minute, like <laughs> the, world, the world that this takes place in, not the virtual reality, like people it doesn't really focus on the fact it in the initial opening monologue it does, but it doesn't ever deal with the fact that like people are living in a miserable fucking experience. Like it's Elysium. It looks like Elysium. It's overpopulated. And it's like, I think it's really well um, kind of like realized in the, the stacks is what it's called where it's like people living literally in like trailers stacked on top of each other. I like that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but like, that's kind of all you get shots outside of that. It looks like pretty average everyday city living, you know, but it's like the fact that people need to be in virtual reality means the world is fucked. And so it's like, that can be a statement on like just entertainment at large, you know, where it's just like, we we can't deal with the world outside. And so that's not really addressed in any way. It's all about the fate of the fake realm that people are obsessed with and so it's just like i walked out and i was like yeah but the world's still fucked how come they're like that that wasn't sort of written into the conclusion or at least in the escalation of the plot itself you know like it's a weird contradictory thing going on in this movie where it wants to have it both ways and a lot of movies i think fail at this the sort of have your cake and eat it too it's it is kind of another one of those movies where um, not on the level of something like kick-ass for some reason that pops in my head where it's just like it wants to be the thing it's trying to parody but it can't do them both successfully it's a really hard fine line I think to walk yeah. Spielberg I think does it it's, it's, it's a lesser thing here but I think he's trying to do it too because by the end given what happens there is this thing to be like hey don't be on it all the time that's not good real life real life good you hey, know it's like that's the fucking conclusion of the movie oh god alright so just kidding. Uh, sl- uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, there's, it's no doubt where the fuck this movie's going in the end. But like, it's, it's that kind of thing where, um, I can't just blame Spielberg cause he doesn't write a lot of these movies, but he's the director and he just constantly doesn't know how to end a movie in a way that's totally satisfying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This movie isn't by any means the worst culprit of his career. I mean, the post had a far worse last like two minutes in my opinion, but um, and I liked the post better overall, but, uh, but ready player one, just, it's just like, dude, <laughs> like you just had this movie. That's all about defending this thing that everybody's obsessed with. And then they're like, but don't do it too much. It's, it's just sort of stupid and, and well, doesn't fit, it, you know, it just needed to be seated early on. It needed to like, it maybe just, 
I think it what probably works better in the novel is that it's a series of ideas that don't necessarily need to like, they need to be fleshed out and realized, but they don't need to necessarily conclude the way like a conventional entertainment as film needs to. And so like you can have these things unresolved in the book because they can just go on as ideas in your head when you're thinking about it afterwards. Whereas like for a satisfying kind of like piece of blockbuster entertainment, you need it to conclude like conclusively, huh? Um, <laughs> you know, like a movie like the matrix is able to open up, you know, and they're, they're not dissimilar from each other. I know. in like the marketing, they're definitely referencing the matrix as like one of the like fake posters for the movie, but it's like that movie, if it, if it had just been one film, like it could have opened up these ideas that you could just like carry on, like, and sort of like live with and have them like be unresolved and kind of like, and you could think about long after the fact, the fact that it had to create a mythology and a legacy through like, you know, sequels that followed it up, I think kind of deadened those ideas and it sort of ran them into the earth in a sort of unsatisfying way. And so like Steven Spielberg always has to kind of like make nice in his conclusions and he doesn't have these ambiguities that, that like a lot of compelling filmmaking is allowed to have and be, um, he likes to just be like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's uh, no, no, no. It was all worth it in saving private Ryan. Don't worry about it. He'll get a hug at the cemetery in the end. And you're just like, no, just have it. War is fucking hell, and that's what right. you just told us. Like that's what you just showed us. Like, un, like you you can't argue that fact. It's fucking hell, and what it does to people is like horrific. Like you already showed us that. You don't need to make nice at the end. Like you don't need the old guy saying, "Am I a good man?" It doesn't matter. Fuck no, you're not a good man. You're terrible. <laughs> you're dead inside from what this what this did to you. Enjoy, you're Matt Damon. You're ter- enjoy. <laughs> enjoy the closing credits. Um, <laughs> here's the American flag, <laughs> um, but yeah, like they're like, I mean, granted this movie is not like I, I was actually, you know, the, one of the lines, um, said in the opening narration by Ty Sheridan was like, nope, we were no longer trying to resolve problems. We were just trying to like, outlive them. Yeah. No, no. I thought that was like, I was like, well, that's fucking true. That's like true, true of existence right now. Like I call bullshit on that, but I want to hear what you have to say. What you call bullshit on what? On that line. I, I scoffed at that line. I'm like, oh, really? Like people were trying to solve problems right now. Like, mm, like we're saying that right now in 2018, we are trying to solve problems. I mean, I, I just, guess you, yeah, I thought you can it, make the I mean, I think the past that it's referring to is pretty generalized. I don't know that he's talking about this specific moment we're in. That's a good point. Yeah, because he was born after he's born in like 2027. Okay, okay. Yeah, and you could also just like, there. there's also like a wistful, there's a safety and nostalgia to be like people, there was hope back then because like, right. still time left and like the sense, and we definitely feel that now that it was just like, Jesus, how much worse can it get before we start to resolve things or like feel like it's crucial and possible for us to do so. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And like, and so I thought that was like, I I thought in establishing it's kind of like safe, whimsical dystopia, like that was a interesting premise. That's not paid off necessarily. Right. You know, wandering through this trash landscape, not unlike Isle of dogs and like, 
yeah, also set in the future. <laughs> the sort of Warren of like crumpled cars and stuff. And, uh, you know, I just in, like him saying those lines, I was like, well, that's a that's a great entry point. Like and that's that's sort of where we're at in terms of numbing ourselves and burying ourselves in entertainment is like what what answers does anybody have when people are so at odds with each other? You know, and like what what change is possible you know, when things have to just keep getting worse without any sense of like direction or improvement, you know, it's a good point. It's a good point. Maybe I need to think about that a little harder. I just, for some reason, maybe it was just the line itself. I was like, really? But yeah, but you, you I, but, came in kind of like, it seems like you're reversed to this movie. Wow. I, I wonder what it was because I, actually I don't need to wonder because it's that narration. I, as soon as it fucking starts, I'm like, why? why and then it pops up just randomly throughout the movie it's true it's abandoned kind of at will and it's like it's a carryover from the novel i'm sure that it's just like that's how the novel's narrated and there's like right right helpful like exposition that like you know you're you're it's it's cheating a lot of the time you know like it is i also feel like with such a strong visual filmmaker I really could have figured all what was going on in that world without him saying anything. I mean, I'm looking at a fucking trash heap of trailers stocked on top of each, stacked on top of each other. You know, mm. it's like, yeah, things look pretty bad. What if he just said 2047 or whatever? You know, like for all the 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 flaws, but I still like it a lot of Elysium. That movie doesn't do that. It just shows you that same image. It's like the same opening shot of a like a drone shot of these stacks of just horrific terrible living on top of each other you know like um it says everything with the image you know and it's a beautiful long one take with ty sheridan going down these ladders just let me take that in you know you've already got the bullshit van halen song playing i mean you know and i'm gonna i'm gonna go go ahead hey god damn it it's usage maybe bullshit that song is not bullshit though i'm sorry i i i have no beef with that song really with any of the songs in the movie but they're just so goddamn obvious and well it's it's also fake like it's just like that's not kids are going to be listening to and to first of all there will be no kids in 2040 (laughs) we're not going to be around anymore however like (laughs) the sense of like the the peak of when the filmmaker was like relevant is like everybody is sort of compelled by it's kind of like um in Star Trek, the sort of the rebooted Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, that the fact that they're listening to Beastie Boys, yeah, the Beastie Boys, like a thousand years into the future, like <laughs> I mean, I like I love the Beastie Boys, but give me a fucking break. Yeah, you're like sabotage is great, but really, Captain Kirk, I, yeah, it's gonna I be like it's going to be like music we don't recognize anymore. Like Jesus, for what the fuck are they listening to in the future? Like. Oh God, that was a fucking nightmare. I don't want to. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be in the future. No thanks. <laughs> you know, there, there. It occurs to me that <clears throat> Looper. I think of the movie Looper in this instance because that movie actually very um, satirically and I thought effectively sort of um, made fun of this idea. Do you remember how they were dressing like a certain aesthetic in that movie in the future world? And Jeff Daniels, who was like the boss to Joseph Gordon-Levitt was like, oh, all you kids just dress the way people did 30 years ago. Yeah. And I really like that because it's commenting in a clever way without being too winky. And I thought that movie effectively sort of used it in that story to, to build into the idea of like, 
nostalgia becoming this almost like just this bizarre thing that continues to grow and grow uh, as we go into the future. And I agree. Why are people into the eighties at this point in the future? It, it makes no sense. We're already, you and me have been talking about the nineties nostalgia wave is in full swing at this point. Like, yeah. yeah, won't they be into what was popular in 2020? But I guess maybe that's what they're saying is well, that it's all being regurgitated every 20 years, but yeah, I, I don't know. So like, I, I think that we think about this a lot and we end up discussing it a lot in that, like, because there was a certain quality of attention available to people like in different eras, it was less imposed upon, less fragmented, less distracted. Something could become and be coveted. Like something could become huge culturally, you know, like, and I I think how it was received informs how it's developed. And so like, there are these like just, gigantic pieces of entertainment of a certain era because there was the receptivity to it. And like, now I just don't know that that's possible. I don't like, I don't know if like you can have, like you can continue making star Wars, but like for an entire new star Wars to exist, like something that's not called star Wars, but have the same impact. I don't know that that's possible anymore. Just because like, we are so fragmented. You're so like, overwhelmed and distracted that like for something to have a giant cultural impact, like I just don't like, I don't know that you can have another back to the future that isn't back to the future. You know what I mean? Like I do. The great example of this is avatar. That movie came out what almost 10 years ago. Yeah. And it still the, at least uh, not adjusted for inflation is still by far the biggest grossing movie of all time worldwide. But do you ever talk about that movie with anybody? Like I, this has been brought up on a, a podcast I really love, the Slash Filmcast. It's a running joke where one of them really likes the movie still, but the others are sort of like it has no cultural footprint. Yet it's the most, by far, high gro- highest grossing movie. Like, yeah, I think it speaks to what you're saying. That's how it happened with Avatar. But now I'm like almost worried for James Cameron, although never count out James Cameron. But I'm like, what are these sequels going to like? Does anybody care about it? Yeah. Like you look at um, like like music from the same era, you know, as as it's sort of like referenced in in Ready Player One itself. Like there are these like big hits that it's like referencing like 60 years after their time, like as set in, in the movie itself. Like there were there were there was like a, a reception to it that could build people like Prince up and like Prince, Michael Jackson, Madonna, there were these like icons and like, they were worthy of it. They were, they could rise to the occasion. They were giants, you know, like, and they, they had like gargantuan talent, but there was also something in our ability to like sustain an interest and a captivation with them that like fed into each other. There was like a, there was a, like a relationship there. Whereas nowadays you'll look at like YouTube and be like, this video has a fucking billion views, but like (laughs) it'll, it'll even with a billion views, which is a giant, it should be a giant pop cultural footprint. It vanishes like, yeah, yeah. Like it rinses off. And so it's like, you have the numbers that reflect a relevance, but it doesn't have a lasting impact. And so it's just like ready player one. I think like if it, if it if it were stronger, it could be all about that. It could be like navigating this like overwhelming terrain of like nostalgia 
while still communicating a sadness about what that means, you know, like Mm -hmm. that we have lost the ability for things to like have sustained relevance, you know, in like a garbage throwaway culture. (laughs) Like every, every sentence I find myself (laughs) landing on is like, Oh, this is anti Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Like, it's just like, it's the, it, or it is the anti Steven Spielberg ending. You're like, we live in a garbage culture where nothing matters and we're all filing into the same discount bin. Good night. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's the ending I wanted for ready player one. That's the more honest ending. It feels like, but uh, yeah, Spiel- Spielberg can't do it, man. It ain't in his bones. And I feel like at least if we, if we're wrapping up or concluding is like, we like, uh, I like Steven Spielberg. Don't let me speak for you. I, I still like him. And I do always scoff at even cinephiles, true, true cinephiles that just, just talk shit about this guy. And he's made... like your favorite filmmaker loves Steven Spielberg. So like yeah. enough, enough of like dismissing him. Like he's made movies that like frustrate the hell out of me, but it's just like, I can't, you can't negate him. You don't, you can't leave him out of a conversation. No. And I see people doing that. It's dismissive in the way, in a similar way to like, remember when you and I would just go on about like Arnold Schwarzenegger movies at the art museum and people, if you caught like a, if one of our audience members was there, like, yeah, I feel so like they'd, why are you talking about that? Like, yeah, like turning their nose up at it's cause we think it's worthy of discussion and he's awesome. I mean, what, <laughs> what more do you need? But like, that is, uh, I feel like an old fashioned way of being a cinephile that like, Hey dude, at this a, at this point in time, like I want all the, the, as Homer Simpson would say, I appreciate all the the meats of our cultural stew. I want the B movies. I want the A prestige. You know, like I want it all. So stop talking shit, people. Spielberg's awesome, <laughs> even when he's just okay in this instance. So did you um, see it in conclusion? Did you see it in 3D? I did not, but I I'm, I don't want to see the movie again. But I'm curious to see it in 3D. Did you? No, I saw the, oh, the 70 mil, yeah. which like looked great. Um, it like you know, you could, you could see the specs on it. It's beautiful. Um, but yeah, I haven't looked, but it's possible he shot it on 35. He's been going back to film in this yeah. uh, la- later era. So I, don't I know. Can't, can't keep 3d glasses on for longer than 90 minutes. I found. And like, it was funny because in the arc light introduction, uh, they were like, this movie does have a running time of two hours and 27 minutes. And you can hear everybody go, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Like in in even in a hectic maximalized like eighty <laughs> movie like this, people are like I can't watch this for two hour two and a half hours. <laughs> I got Netflix movies to start and stop later on. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Shout outs to Spielberg. We I still think he's awesome, and it sounds like you do too. We're we're always gonna to to just admire this guy. And um, quick shout outs to Olivia Cook from Thoroughbreds. I think she her and Lena Waith from uh, Master of None do so much with so little in this movie. And I, I adored their performances. I especially think Lena Waithe is just awesome. And I love that she's kind of blowing up um, post master of none, like Emmy win. That's very exciting. And uh, she's, I sh- she's super fun in this. Um, yeah. yeah. Olivia cook. Like it's a shame <laughs> watching her like, sh- like find a, you know, a role like thoroughbreds where it's like an intelligent script and then having to stumble through like really dumb motivation in ready player one. You're like, you see an incredibly smart actress, like working with stupid motivation. You're like, God bless you. God bless yep. you for this work. 
And so like, yeah, I like, I'm so excited for her in the future. Uh, I, I'm still excited for Ty Sheridan, the lead of this movie. I think he's miscast in this movie. Not terrible. I just think, I think that he's miscast personally. Um, but I do want to still shout out uh, that kid in Tree of Life, but especially Mud. And uh, you remember the Nicolas Cage movie, Joe? Remember that yeah, one? Of course. That, I mean, we talked about this actor as a young kid in those movies a lot. And he blew my mind as a child actor. So I'm now that he's sort of graduated into the bigger blockbuster mold, I'm happy for him, for his career. Um, but he was also not very good in the one of the X-Men movies recently. And um, he played Cyclops, I, I, if I remember right. So I'm, I'm still pulling for the kid, but I do kind of miss those earlier, more um, maybe less refined performances that uh, just, man, there's the truth coming out of that kid. Like, it's just, you couldn't deny it. So um, I think uh, he and what, Barry Keogh, is that his name? They should play brothers yeah. or something. They should. That's a really... <laughs> Uh, well, make it happen, people. Let's go. Oh. David Gordon Green, make it happen. It'll be announced like on deadline tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. All right, man. Well, uh, what do you say? We've been going for an hour and 20. Should we wrap it up? Let's do it. So just chill to the next episode. All right, man. So we're going to wrap up uh, episode 172 of Adjust Your Tracking. You can find us and uh, all our other shows on the Playlist Podcast Network. You just go to the playlist.net. There's the podcast tab there. Um, you can find all of our shows there. And, and like I said, those of our other shows, um, uh, you can, where, where can people contact us, Joe, uh, email, we've got an email account. How can people, uh, connect with us there? Yeah. Adjust your tracking at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're on Facebook, but, uh, you know, not really excited about it anymore, but adjust your tracking has a page there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at adjust your track. Uh, I'll, I'll keep a Y T updates going on that, on that realm. Um, and you know that, that we'd be very thankful for any support or sharing or just listening to the show that you can give us. But, um, before I thank you, Joe, yeah. uh, I got, I, I, I want us to think of a new subtitle for the third strangers movie. It doesn't have to be before we stop recording here, but I want you to think about it because pray at night is pretty terrible. We, we, we can do better. But um, while I think of that, I'm going to just go buy a ticket for either seatbelt the movie or rearview mirror the movie. I can't decide. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> that was a lot. That was a lot to throw at me. It was too much. <laughs> um, thank, thank you, Joe. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>